I love this book, and you must too, since you've listened along this far. If you want to hear some of my other favorites, then check out the Sleepy Bookshelf premium feed. There are no ads, and you can try it free for seven days. You'll find a link in the show notes to learn more and sign up. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host. Thank you for choosing to be here tonight. This evening, we'll be returning to to the lighthouse. But before that, let's take a moment to let go of the day. Get comfy where you are and feel rooted and safe. Close your eyes and take a deep breath in through your nose for one, two, three, and four. Then out through your mouth for one, two, three, four. Continue breathing at this slow, even pace. And as you inhale, imagine that you are breathing in calmness and strength. As you exhale, imagine that you're breathing out stress and worry. Feel your anxiety slip away with each exhale. And if your mind drifts to thoughts of anxiety, acknowledge them, then bring your attention back to your breath. Notice how calm you feel as I recap on our last episode. Last time, Lily Briscoe had been at breakfast the first morning after her arrival back at the house. Mr. Ramsay had wanted to take Cam and James to the lighthouse and had asked them to be ready early. When they were not, he flew into a rage. Lily took herself away, determining to reattempt her painting of the house from all those years ago. But she was distracted by Mr. Ramsay's presence, pacing the terrace. She could tell he was looking for sympathy when he spoke to her, but she found she was unable to offer it to him. She didn't know how, and so made an awkward comment about his boots, which seemed to satisfy him. By the time the children were ready, he was showing Lily a neat way of tying laces so they wouldn't come undone. She watched them leave and began to paint. She reflected on Charles Tansley, how irritating she had found him, and then a fond memory of them both skipping stones together on the beach while Mrs. Ramsay wrote letters nearby. With this, she pondered the meaning of life in that moment 
and how moments like that were made into memories. Then she went to the edge of the lawn to see the boats on the shore, trying to spot the one setting sail with Mr. Ramsay, James and Cam. And that's where we pick up tonight, with the sails of the little boat flapping in the wind. So lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of To the Lighthouse. Part 3. The Lighthouse. Chapter 5. The sails flapped over their heads. The water chuckled and slapped the sides of the boat, which drowsed motionless in the sun. Now and then, the sails rippled with a little breeze in them, but the ripple ran over them and ceased. The boat made no motion at all. Mr. Ramsay sat in the middle of the boat. He would be impatient in a moment, James thought, and Cam thought, looking at her father, who sat in the middle of the boat between them. James steered. Cam sat alone in the bow, with his legs tightly curled. He hated hanging about. Sure enough, after fidgeting a second or two, he said something sharp to McAllister's boy, who got out his oars and began to row. But their father, they knew, would never be content until they were flying along. He would keep looking for a breeze, fidgeting, saying something under his breath, which McAllister and McAllister's boy would overhear and they would both be made horribly uncomfortable. He had made them come. He had forced them to come. In their anger, they hoped that the breeze would never rise, that he might be thwarted in every possible way since he had forced them to come against their wills. All the way down to the beach, they had lagged behind, though he bade them walk up, walk up without speaking. Their heads were bent down. Their heads were pressed down by some remorseless gale. Speak to him, they could not. They must come. They must follow. They must walk behind him carrying brown paper parcels. But they vowed in silence as they walked to stand by each other and carry out the great compact to resist tyranny to the death. So there they would sit, one at one end of the boat, one at the other, in silence. They would say nothing, only look at him now again where he sat, with his legs twisted, frowning and fidgeting, and pishing and pshawing, and muttering things to himself, and waiting impatiently for a breeze. They hoped it would be calm. They hoped he would be thwarted. They hoped the whole expedition would fail and they would have to be put back with their parcels to the beach. 
But now, when McAllister's boy had rowed a little way out, the sails slowly swung around. The boat quickened itself, flattened itself, and shot off. Instantly, as if some great strain had been relieved, Mr. Ramsay uncurled his legs, took out his tobacco pouch, handed it with a little grunt to McAllister, and felt they knew for all they suffered, perfectly content. Now they would sail on for hours like this, and Mr. Ramsay would ask old McAllister a question about the great storm last winter, probably, and old Mr. McAllister would answer it, and they would puff their pipes together, and McAllister would take a tarry rope in his fingers, tying or untying some knot, and the boy would fish and never say a word to anyone. James would be forced to keep his eye all the time on the sail, for if he forgot, then the sail puckered and shivered and the boat slackened, and Mr. Ramsay would say sharply, Look out! Look out! And old Mr. McAllister would turn slowly in his seat, So they heard Mr. Ramsay asking some question about the great storm at Christmas. She comes driving round the point, old McAllister said, describing the great storm last Christmas, when ten ships had been driven into the bay for shelter, and he had seen one there, one there, one there. He pointed slowly round the bay. Mr. Ramsay followed him, turning his head. He had seen four men clinging to the mast. Then she was gone. And at last we shoved her off, he went on. But in their anger and their silence, they only caught a word here and there, sitting at opposite ends of the boat, united by their compact to fight tyranny to the death. At last, they had shoved her off. They'd launched the lifeboat, and they'd got out past the point, McAllister told the story. And though they only caught a word here and there, they were conscious all the time of their father, how he leant forward, how he brought his voice into tune with Mr. McAllister's voice, how puffing at his pipe and looking there and there where McAllister pointed He relished the thought of the storm and the dark night and the fishermen striving there. He liked that men should labor and sweat on the windy beach at night, pitting muscle and brain against the waves and wind. He liked men to work like that and women to keep house and sit beside sleeping children indoors while men were drowned out there in a storm. So James could tell. So Cam could tell. They looked at him. They looked at each other. From his toss and his vigilance and the ring in his voice and the little tinge of Scottish accent which came into his voice as he questioned McAllister about the eleven ships that had been driven into bay by a storm, Three had sunk. He looked proudly where McAllister pointed, and Cam thought 
feeling proud of him without quite knowing why. Had he been there, he would have launched the lifeboat. He would have reached the wreck, Cam thought. He was so brave. He was so adventurous, Cam thought. But she remembered there was the compact to resist tyranny to the death. Their grievance weighed them down. They had been forced. They had been bidden. He had borne them down once more with his gloom and authority, making them do his bidding on this fine morning, come because he wished it, carrying these parcels to the lighthouse, take part in these rites he went through for his own pleasure in memory of dead people, which they hated, so that they lagged after him, or the pleasure of the day was spoiled. Yes, the breeze was freshening. The boat was leaning. The water was sliced sharply and fell away in green cascades, in bubbles, in cataracts. Cam looked down into the foam, into the sea with all its treasure in it, and its speed hypnotized her. And the tie between her and James sagged a little slackened a little. She began to think, how fast it goes. Where are we going? And the movement hypnotized her, while James, with his eye fixed on the sail on the horizon, steered grimly. But he began to think as he steered that he might escape. He might quit of it all. They might land somewhere, and he'd be free then. Both of them, looking at each other for a moment, had a sense of escape and exultation, what with the speed and the change. But the breeze bred in Mr. Ramsay too the same excitement, and as old McAllister turned to fling his line overboard, he cried out aloud, We perished! And then again, each alone and then, with his usual spasm of repentance or shyness, pulled himself up and waved his hand towards the shore. See the little house, he said, pointing, wishing Cam to look. She raised herself reluctantly and looked, but which was it? She could no longer make out, there on the hillside, which was their house. All looked distant, and peaceful and strange. The shore seemed refined, far away, unreal. Already the little distance they had sailed had put them far from it and given it the changed look, the composed look of something receding in which one has no longer any part, which was their house. She could not see it. But I beneath a rougher sea, Mr. Ramsay murmured. He had found the house, and so seeing it, he had also seen himself there. He had seen himself walking on the terrace alone. He was walking up and down between the urns, and he seemed to himself very old and bowed. 
Sitting in the boat, he bowed. He crouched himself, acting instantly his part. The part of a desolate man, widowed, bereft, and so called up before him in hosts, people sympathizing with him, staged for himself as he sat in the boat, little drama, which required of him decrepitude and exhaustion and sorrow. He raised his hands and looked at the thinness of them to confirm his dream. And then there he was given him in abundance women's sympathy, and he imagined how they would soothe him and sympathize with him. And so, getting in his dream some reflection of the exquisite pleasure women's sympathy was to him, he sighed and said gently and mournfully, But I, beneath a rougher sea, was whelmed in deeper gulfs than he. So that the mournful words were heard quite clearly by them all. Cam half started on her seat. It shocked her. It outraged her. The movement roused her father and he shuddered and broke off, exclaiming, Look, look so urgently that James also turned his head to look over his shoulder at the island. They all looked. They looked at the island. But Cam could see nothing. She was thinking how all those paths in the lawn, thick and knotted with the lives they had lived there, were gone, were rubbed out, were past, were unreal. And now this was real. The boat and the sail with its patch, McAllister with his earrings, the noise of the waves. All this was real. Thinking this, she was murmuring to herself, We perished, each alone. For her father's words broke and broke again in her mind, when her father, seeing her gazing so vaguely, began to tease her. Didn't she know the points of a compass? He asked. Didn't she know the north from the south? Did she really think they lived right out there? And he pointed again and showed her where their house was, by those trees. He wished she would try to be more accurate, he said. Tell me, which is east, which is west? He said, half laughing at her, half scolding her for he could not understand the state of mind of anyone who did not know the points of a compass. Yet she did not know, and seeing her gazing with her vague, now rather frightened eyes fixed where no house was, Mr. Ramsay forgot his dream, how he walked up and down between the urns on the terrace, how the arms were stretched out to him. He thought, Women are always like that. The vagueness of their minds is hopeless. It was a thing he had never been able to understand. But so it was. It had been so with her, his wife. They could not keep anything clearly fixed in their minds. But he had been wrong to be angry with her. Moreover, did he not rather like this vagueness in women? 
just part of their extraordinary charm. I will make her smile at me, he thought. She looks frightened. She was so silent. He clutched his fingers and determined that his voice and face and all the quick, expressive gestures which had been at his command, making people pity him and praise him all these years, should subdue themselves. He would make her smile at him. He would find some simple thing to say to her. But what? For wrapped up in his work as he was, he forgot the sort of thing one said. There was a puppy. They had a puppy. Who was looking after the puppy today? He asked. Yes, thought James piteously, seeing his sister's head against the sail. Now she will give way. I shall be left to fight the tyrant alone. The compact would be left to him to carry out. Cam would never resist tyranny to the death, he thought grimly, watching her face, sad, sulky, yielding. And as sometimes happens when a cloud falls on a green hillside and gravity descends and there among all the surrounding hills is gloom and sorrow and it seems as if the hills themselves must ponder the fate of the clouded, the darkened, either in pity or maliciously rejoicing in her dismay. So now Cam felt overcast as she sat there among calm, resolute people and wondered how to answer her father about the puppy, how to resist his entreaty. Forgive me. Care for me. While James, the lawgiver, with the tablets of eternal wisdom laid open on his knee, his hand on the tiller had become symbolical to her, said, resist him, fight him. He said so rightly, justly, for they must fight tyranny to the death, she thought. Of all human qualities, she reverenced justice most. Her brother was most godlike, her father most suppliant. And to which did she yield, she thought, sitting between them, gazing at the shore whose points were all unknown to her, and thinking how the lawn and the terrace and the house were smoothed away now, and peace dwelt there. Jasper, she said sullenly, he'd look after the puppy. And what was she going to call him, her father persisted. He had had a dog when he was a little boy called Frisk. She'll give way, James thought, as he watched a look come upon her face a look he remembered. They look down, he thought, at their knitting or something. Then suddenly they look up. There was a flash of blue, he remembered. And then somebody sitting with him laughed, surrendered, and he was very angry. It must have been his mother, he thought, sitting on a low chair with his father standing over her. He began to search among the infinite series of impressions which time had laid down, leaf upon leaf, fold upon fold, softly, incessantly upon his brain, among scents, sounds, voices, 
harsh, hollow, sweet, and lights passing, and brooms tapping, and the wash and hush of the scene. How a man had marched up and down and stopped dead, upright over them. Meanwhile, he noticed Cam dabbled her fingers in the water and stared at the shore and said nothing. No, she won't give way, he thought. She's different, he thought. Well, if Cam would not answer him, he would not bother her, Mr. Ramsey decided, feeling in his pocket for a book. But she would answer him. She wished passionately to move some obstacle that lay upon her tongue and to say, Oh yes, Frisk, I'll call him Frisk. She wanted even to say, Was that the dog that found its way over the moor alone? But try as she might, she could think of nothing to say like that, fierce and loyal to the compact, yet passing on to her father, unsuspected by James, a private token of the love she felt for him. For she thought, dabbling her hand, now McAllister's boy had caught a mackerel and it lay kicking on the floor, blood in its gills. For she thought looking at James, who kept his eyes dispassionately on the sail, or glanced now and then for a second at the horizon. You're not exposed to it, to this pressure and division of feeling, this extraordinary temptation. Her father was feeling in his pockets. In another second, he would have found his book. For no one attracted her more. His hands were beautiful. And his feet. And his voice. And his words. And his haste. And his temper. And his oddity. And his passion. And his saying straight out before everyone, We perish each alone and his remoteness. He had opened his book. But what remained intolerable, she thought, sitting upright and watching McAllister's boy tug the hook out of the gills of another fish, was that crass blindness and tyranny of his which had poisoned her childhood and raised bitter storms, so that even now she woke in the night, trembling with rage remembered some command of his, some insolence. Do this, do that. His dominance, his submit to me. So she said nothing, but looked doggedly and sad at the shore, wrapped in its mantle of peace, as if the people there had fallen asleep, she thought, were free like smoke were free to come and go like ghosts. They have no suffering there, she thought. Chapter 6 Yes, that is their boat, Lily Briscoe decided, standing on the edge of the lawn. It was the boat with greyish-brown sails, which she saw now flattened itself upon the water and shoot off across the bay. There he sits, she thought, and the children are quite silent still. She could not reach him either. The sympathy she had not given him weighed her down, 
made it difficult for her to paint. She had always found him difficult. She had never been able to praise him to his face, she remembered, and that reduced their relationship to something neutral, without that element of attraction in it which made his manner to Minter so gallant, almost gay. He would pick a flower for her, lend her his books. But could he believe that Minter read them? She dragged them about the garden, sticking leaves to mark the place. Do you remember Mr. Carmichael? She was inclined to ask, looking at the old man. But he had pulled his hat half over his forehead. He was asleep, or he was dreaming, or he was lying there catching words, she supposed. Do you remember? She felt inclined to ask him as she passed him, thinking again of Mrs. Ramsay on the beach, the cask bobbing up and down, and the pages flying. Why, after all these years, had that survived, ringed round, lit up, visible to the last detail, with all before it blank and all after it blank for miles and miles? Is it a boat? Is it a cork? she would say, Lily repeated, turning back reluctantly again to her canvas. Heaven be praised for it. The problem of space remained, she thought, taking up her brush again. It glared at her. The whole mass of the picture was poised upon that weight. Beautiful and bright it should be on the surface. Feathery and evanescent. One colour melting into another like the colours on a butterfly's wing. But beneath the fabric must be clamped together with bolts of iron. It was to be a thing you could ruffle with your breath, and a thing you could not dislodge with a team of horses. And she began to lay on a red, a grey, and she began to model her way into the hollow there. At the same time, she seemed to be sitting beside Mrs. Ramsay on the beach. Is it a boat? Is it a cask? Mrs. Ramsay said, and she began hunting round for her spectacles, and she sat, having found them, silent, looking out to sea. And Lily, painting steadily, felt as if a door had opened, and one went in and stood, gazing silently about in a high cathedral-like place, very dark, very solemn. Shouts came from a world far away. Steamers vanished in stalks of smoke on the horizon. Charles threw stones and sent them skipping. Mrs. Ramsay sat silent. She was glad, Lily thought, to rest in silence, uncommunicative, to rest in the extreme obscurity of human relationships. Who knows what we are? what we feel. Who knows, even at the moment of intimacy, this is knowledge. Aren't things spoilt then, Mrs. Ramsay may have asked. It seems to have happened so often, this silence by her side, by saying them. Aren't we more expressive thus? 
The moment, at least, seemed extraordinarily fertile. She rammed a little hole in the sand and covered it up by way of burying in it the perfection of the moment. It was like a drop of silver in which one dipped and illumined the darkness of the past. Lily stepped back to get her canvas, so into perspective. It was an odd road to be walking, this of painting. Out and out one went, further, until at last one seemed to be on a narrow plank, perfectly alone over the sea. And as she dipped into the blue paint, she dipped too into the past there, Now Mrs. Ramsay got up, she remembered, and it was time to go back to the house. Time for luncheon. And they all walked up from the beach together, she walking behind with William Banks, and there was Minta in front of them with a hole in her stocking. How that little round hole of pink heel seemed to flaunt itself before them. How William Banks deplored it, without so far as she could remember saying anything about it. It meant to him the annihilation of womanhood and dirt and disorder and servants leaving and beds not made till midday. All the things he most abhorred. He had a way of shuddering and spreading his fingers out as if to cover an unsightly object, which he did now, holding his hand in front of him. A minter walked on ahead, Presumably Paul met her, and she went off with Paul in the garden. The Rayleighs, thought Lily Briscoe, squeezing her tube of green paint. She collected her impressions of the Rayleighs. Their lives appeared to her in a series of scenes. One on the staircase at dawn. Paul had come in and gone to bed early. Minta was late. There was Minta, wreathed, tinted, garish on the stairs about three o'clock in the morning. Paul came out in his pyjamas carrying a poker in case of burglars. Minta was eating a sandwich, standing halfway up by a window in the cadaverous early morning light, and the carpet had a hole in it. But what did they say? Lily asked herself as if by looking she could hear them. Minta went on eating her sandwich annoyingly, while he spoke something violent in a mutter so as not to wake the children, the two little boys. He was withered, drawn, she flamboyant, careless, for things had worked loose after the first year or so. The marriage had turned out rather badly. And this, Lily thought, taking the green paint on her brush, this making up scenes about them is what we call knowing people, thinking of them, being fond of them. Not a word of it was true. She had made it up, but it was what she knew by them all the same. She went on, tunnelling her way into her picture, into the past. Another time, Paul said he played chess in a coffee house. She'd built up a whole structure of imagination on that saying, too, 
She remembered how, as he said it, she thought how he rang up the servant, and she said, Mrs. Rayleigh's out, sir. And he decided he would not come home either. She saw him sitting in the corner of some lugubrious place, where the smoke attached itself to the red plush seats, and the waitresses got to know you, and he played chess with a little man who was in the tea trade and lived at Surbiton. But that was all Paul knew about him. And then Minter was out when he came home, and then there was that scene on the stairs when he got the poker in case of burglars, no doubt to frighten her too, and spoke so bitterly, saying she had ruined his life. At any rate, when she went down to see them at a cottage near Rickmansworth, things were horribly strained. Paul took her down the garden to look at the Belgian hares which she bred, and Minta followed them, singing, and put her bare arm on his shoulder, lest he should tell her anything. Minta was bored by hares, Lily thought. But Minta never gave herself away. She never said things like that about chess playing in coffee houses. She was far too conscious, far too wary. But to go on with their story, they had got through the dangerous stage by now. She had been staying with them last summer sometime, and the car broke down, and Minta had to hand him his tools. He sat on the road, mending the car, and it was the way she gave him the tools. Businesslike, straightforward, friendly, that proved it was all right now. They were in love no longer. No, he had taken up with another woman, a serious woman, with her hair in a plait and a case in her hand. Minta had described her gratefully, almost admiringly. He went to meetings and shared Paul's views. They had got more and more pronounced about the taxation of land values and a capital levy. Far from breaking up the marriage, that alliance had righted it. They were excellent friends, obviously, as he sat on the road and she handed him his tools. So that was the story of the Rayleighs, Lily thought. She imagined herself telling it to Mrs. Ramsay, who would be full of curiosity to know what had become of the Rayleighs. She would feel a little triumphant telling Mrs. Ramsay that the marriage had not been a success. But the dead, thought Lily, encountering some obstacle in her design which had made her pause and ponder, stepping back a foot or so. All the dead, she murmured. One pitied them. One brushed them aside. One even had a little contempt for them. They are at our mercy. Mrs. Ramsay has faded and gone, she thought. We can override her wishes, improve away her limited, old-fashioned ideas. She recedes further and further from us. Mockingly, she seemed to see her there at the end of the corridor of years, saying, of all incongruous things, Marry, marry. Sitting very upright early in the morning, with the birds beginning to cheep in the garden outside. And one would have to say to her, 
it has all gone against your wishes. They're happy like that. I'm happy like this. Life has changed completely. And that all her being, even her beauty, became for a moment dusty and out of date. For a moment, Lily, standing there with the sun hot on her back, summing up the Rayleighs, triumphed over Mrs. Ramsay, who would never know how Paul went to coffee houses and had mistresses, and how he sat on the ground and Minter handed him his tools. How she stood here painting, had never married, not even William Banks. Mrs. Ramsay had planned it. Perhaps, had she lived, she would have compelled it. Already that summer, he was the kindest of men. He was the first scientist of his age, my husband says. He was also, poor William, it makes me so unhappy when I go to see him and find nothing nice in his house, no one to arrange the flowers. So they were sent for walks together, and she was told with that faint touch of irony that made Mrs. Ramsay slip through one's fingers, that she had a scientific mind. She liked flowers. She was so exact. What was this mania of hers for marriage? Lily wondered, stepping to and fro from her easel. Suddenly, as suddenly as a star slides in the sky, a reddish light seemed to burn in her mind, covering Paul Rayleigh, issuing from him. It rose like a fire sent up in a token of some celebration by people on a distant beach. She heard the roar and the crackle. The whole sea for miles round ran red and gold. Some whiny smell mixed with it and intoxicated her, for she felt again her own headlong desire to throw herself off the cliff and be drowned looking for a pearl brooch on a beach, and the roar and the crackle repelled her with fear and disgust, as if while she saw its splendour and power, she saw too how it fed on the treasure of the house, greedily, disgustingly, and she loathed it. But for a sight, for a glory, it surpassed everything in her experience and burnt year after year like a signal fire on a desert island at the edge of the sea. And one had only to say, in love, and instantly, as happened now, up rose Paul's fire again. And it sank, and she said to herself, laughing, the Rayleighs. How Paul went to coffee houses and played chess. She had only escaped by the skin of her teeth, though, she thought. She had been looking at the tablecloth, and it had flashed upon her that she would move the tree to the middle and need never marry anybody. And she had felt an enormous exultation. She had felt now she could stand up to Mrs. Ramsay, a tribute to the astonishing power that Mrs. Ramsay had over one. Do this, she said, and one did it. 